Well, if you haven't already, take your Bibles and find your way to 3 John. We are concluding our expository sermon series through John's letters today uh, by looking at this final letter. Uh, This is one of those uh, books in our Bibles that we might have um, uh, known is there, but we don't really know what's in it, perhaps. And so uh, this morning, it's uh, good for us to have this time to uh, give attention to these words uh, for our growth and godliness together as a church family. Which, by the way, I just want to just point out again, this is one of the benefits of ordinarily having an expository uh, sermon approach. Um, we don't, uh, we're not at the mercy of the whims of whatever might be in someone's mind for a topic. Really, we just submit ourselves to the mind of God as revealed in the Word. And so at Highlands, if you're new here, uh, this is kind of the pattern that we, we go through. We will have a portion of Scripture and we'll walk through it systematically, trusting that God's Word is sufficient and His Word is what brings life to His people. And so this morning we find ourselves in the book of Third John. Now, uh, there is a fair bit that John has written in our Bible, so if you're not familiar with how your Bible works, uh, you'll notice that John has written four different things in the New Testament. And so if you look at your table of contents, you'll find uh, John early in the New Testament, kind of with Matthew, Mark, Luke. That would be John's Gospel. We're not going to be there. We're going to be in Third John, which look later in the table of contents, and you'll see 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and we'll be in 3rd John. I think it's on page 1026 in one of the Bibles there in a seat back pocket if you don't have a Bible. We'd love for you to grab one, open it up, and follow along. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, that's our gift to you. Please take it. Uh, we'd love for you to have that. 3rd John is an interesting uh, book of our Bible because it's so short. Uh, We have really, um, in the Greek, in the original Greek, it's just under 200 words. It would have, it's the shortest New Testament letter in that regard, and it uh, would have fit on one sheet of papyrus. This was a letter, and it would have fit on one sheet of papyrus, papyrus being the, the paper that would have been used in that day. And I think it's interesting because we have for us here in the Scriptures an actual letter involving real Christians. We have their names that was written nearly 2,000 years ago. It gives us a snapshot into the life of the early church back in that day and some of the challenges and problems that the church faced as they tried to live out their mission of proclaiming Jesus in their their world. So uh, this should both encourage us and remind us. One encourages us because we get a snapshot into the life of an early church, and it should also remind us that uh, uh, we are not perfect. There has never been a perfect church. Uh, We are looking forward to God perfecting us and one day bringing with him his perfect rule and reign in full here and in a new uh, heaven and earth, but that isn't here yet. And so um, it's encouraging to remember that God has been faithful to his church through the years, and really what we look to as a church family is a perfect king, a perfect savior. First, second, and third John. Here we are in third John, but uh, third John is, of course, the third, and so it connects with the other material that John has written. Uh, To help us understand third John, I'm just going to give a brief kind of a survey of how these letters connect to help us understand the text for us this morning. Uh, Second John, if you remember a couple weeks ago, um, we were, uh, Steve preached about how uh, John was warning and giving exhortations about how they should respond to false teachers. They should not receive false teachers. They should not be hospitable to false teachers because that would be kind of authenticating and affirming their false message. And so, He was writing to warn the church and give instructions that they would not have that kind of hospitality to those heretical missionaries. Now in 3 John, we read about an internal threat that was working against the church's efforts to proclaim the good news of Jesus because from time to time, missionaries would come through 
And these were faithful missionaries, not heretical missionaries. They weren't teaching a false gospel. They were teaching a true gospel of Jesus. And uh, it was good for these gospel teachers to be encouraged and sent on their way as they continued to spread the name of Jesus. The problem was, in Third John, was there was a church member, and his name is... How are you going to say this name? Do you see that? Um, I looked it up, and I guess the official Greek saying would be diotrephes, but I don't think any of us would understand that. So I'm going to stick with the kind of Englishized version of the Greek transliteration, diotrephes, okay? I know we're not saying the Greek um, transliteration technically correct, but it's going to work for us, and I will stumble on on the other. But there was a guy in the church, um, and he was acting in selfish interest. He was actively, divisively rejecting these true missionaries that were coming in, and he was rejecting also the instruction of the Apostle John as well, pushing his own agenda. So Second and Third John are, in a sense, case studies of what John wrote about in First John, okay? these tests of true, authentic faith, and how that applies then in the life of the church. Don't receive people that don't have a true confession of Christ. And then you need to receive people that do. And that's the case studies that are being lived out in 2nd and 3rd John. Um, 2nd John, the problem was showing hospitality to the wrong visitors. In 3rd John, the problem was not showing hospitality to the right visitors. Okay, the right guests. In 2nd John, you have a major concern about truth. They weren't preaching a true Jesus, so don't receive them. In 3rd John, the major concern is love. These people are preaching true Jesus. Be hospitable, love, and send them on their way in God's honor. So for a roadmap for this morning as we look through this letter, the short letter of 15 verses, um, we're going to let the letter be organized around uh, the, really the four characters that kind of appear in this letter and use that as a, as a kind of a schematic for four lessons that we can draw from this. Now, I want to be cautious organizing the sermon around those four people. I don't want us to think that 3 John is just kind of full of moralistic lessons. It's not. It really is centering around truth. In fact, that word truth is, I think, or true or truth shows up at least seven times, I think, in just 15 verses. And so that really is the centerpiece of what is being defended, but responding in love to those that are speaking truth. That is, uh, that really is um, what we're aiming at. So first uh, person that shows up here in the letter, point one, Gaius, and he is an example of faithful service. In those first two verses, the elder to the beloved Gaius, of course, this is John writing, whom he loves in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Notice the terms of endearment here in this opening remark. I can imagine how much this would have encouraged Gaius. Uh, I mean, really, based on the rest of the letter, it seems like Gaius was embroiled in controversy going on in that local church. There was an, an active enemy working against his efforts of gospel ministry And here he receives a letter, and I'm sure that um, this would have been fresh breezes of encouragement for guys as he's trying to carry on gospel work amongst that adversity. When you are seeking to do good and people are actively working against it, even the best of us can at some point start to question ourselves. And so John's letter to guys here is really needful encouragement. Press on. He's encouraging him with these words of blessing. Now, interestingly enough, 3 John, I didn't really know this until I started studying, but these opening remarks in 3 John have been dreadfully used by popular prosperity preachers. They've been twisted and yanked out of 3 John and leveraged into some sort of um, promise of God to all Christians everywhere. And it's kind of 
been part of a mantra of promoting a prosperity gospel. If you just do good and give lots and love God, everything's going to be going good for you and you'll have health and prosperity too. I just want to make sure in an age where prosperity gospel is kind of common, that that is not what John is saying here. In fact, these words in the opening lines here, this blessing, was very common in the day. Um, one scholar pointed out how um, this was so common that I, maybe you don't, this is probably generational, maybe you don't do this or you're irritated when people do, if that's it, sorry. But have you ever heard people like in texting, they'll shorten phrases down into just the first letter of each word? Uh, like for instance, I had to write it down because I won't get it right. TTYL, that stands for talk to you later. Okay, some of you are, you know these. Or I-C-Y-M-I, in case you missed it. Uh, there have been records of letters where this opening um, blessing was actually shortened into an acrostic. It was that common. And so I, I'm just pointing out to you here not to take these words as a universal promise from God to all Christians at every time, that if you could just kind of name it and claim it, then you're going to have a good, healthy soul and body. Um, that is not what this is saying. But John's love and affection for guys are still not in question at all. That's what's driving and motivating him in, in writing these words of encouragement. Um, we live in an individualized culture, highly individualized. And as Christians, we're going to have to be aware of that and push against that notion where it starts to infringe on God's plan for his people. And so in America, this Western individualized culture, we kind of pride ourselves in making our own way, doing, our, doing things ourselves. But the New Testament speaks against elevating individualism to that extent. And I think these opening remarks just are a reminder of that. Here you got a guy in a church trying to do good. He's being actively um, antagonized um, for doing that good work. And here John writes a word of encouragement, how, how much of a blessing it must have been for guys to receive that. I'm just pointing out here, God's church through the ages has needed everyone. We need each other. This idea of encouragement and, and, and strengthening one another's efforts in gospel work it's modeled here with John the Gaius, and I think it needs to be modeled over and over again uh, in the church through the ages. And I'm thankful for how God is modeling that type of spirit here at Highlands Baptist Church. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep encouraging each other to walk in the truth. And really that word true or truth is the centerpiece of what John's doing here. Of course, John is carrying a burden. He's an apostle. He has a special um, commitment from God, uh, from Christ, um, to care for the church in a unique role as an apostle, to lead the church in that way. And so John describes in verse 4, you see that, he describes his readers as my children. Um, I'm not sure how much we should read into that. Does that mean that uh, these are actual Christians as a result of John's ministry? Perhaps. But at the very least, it shows John's heart of affection, his love for these Christians, and this is why he's writing to them in their time of need. And it gets even better. In verses 3 and 4, John is writing about joy. Aren't you, don't you find it encouraging when somebody tells you that you made them happy? That you brought a smile to their face? That you gave them gladness from joy? That's a good thing. Because the reverse is the opposite, right? You don't like it when people say, man, you really irritated me. You really frustrated me. None of us like that. But when somebody says, man, you brought me joy, that just fills our heart with joy. This is what John is doing here. He's writing about how... Uh, when he, re he rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. Verses 3 and 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Um, John, John is writing to guys saying, you bring me joy, brother. And the reason you bring me joy is because you're walking in truth. It's not fluffy sentimentalism. It's not cheap flattery. 
Others have seen Gaius' life. They've reported that he's been walking in truth. John hears this report. His heart is full of joy. Question, do you walk in truth? Um, Does your life and what others say about you describe a life that walks in truth? Notice it's not, boy, he just kind of has a good smile or he's really gifted this way or he does a lot, he's got a really good, you know, mind for this or what he's, what, what's being reported to John, what fills John with joy most is that he's hearing that these Christians, that Gaius is walking in truth. Does your life and what others say about you describe a life that walks in truth? The big issue here is how our life agrees and submits to God's word, God's truth. And so, by, by the way, um, the pastors of Highlands Baptist Church would share in John's sentiment for God's people. There is nothing that would bring the pastors of this church greater joy than to know that this church family is walking in truth. I know I'm just one pastor, one of six pastors here at Highlands, but as a kind of right now as a little as a spokesperson, I'm, I can assure you that nothing would bring the pastors of this church more joy than knowing you are walking in truth. Not just on a Sunday morning, praise God, but through the week that you're walking in truth. And by the way. Um, if you aren't walking in truth, it's not like the pastors are going to give up on you and say, well, forget it. You're not. No, our hearts are going to be burdened for you. And, and we're going to keep encouraging you to keep walking in truth. That's what we're going to keep holding out in front of you is the truth of God's word so we can walk in it. But let's keep a firm gaze upon Christ as we walk in truth together. As John continues in his instruction in verses 5 through 8, really that's kind of the center of the, of the letter. These opening remarks have been meant to encourage Gaius, to strengthen him in his gospel efforts. Now we finally get into the reason for his writing and the opposition that he's he's facing. Um, In verses 5, he he reminds Gaius, he encourages him that what he's doing is a faithful thing. So you might be wondering, what is he doing? What is Gaius doing? It seems based upon the text that Gaius has been receiving these traveling missionaries in that are going out and proclaiming Christ, the name of Christ. And he's receiving these people in, and they're strangers. It's not like they know each other from something else. It's what, what gives them common interest is that they are both servants of Christ. They are both working to proclaim the fame of Christ. And he's receiving these strangers in, and he's showing love. You see that there in the text in verse five, in 5 and 6? They're, they're testifying of the love that guys are showing there in the church. And John encourages him that he's going to do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And that's where the tension was. There was someone else in the church that was trying to prevent that, that act. He was, Diotrephes was working against those efforts of gospel, true Christian hospitality and love to, to outsiders that have come in who were speaking a true, uh, the true name of Christ. And that's really what is, why John is saying that. Because if you look in the text, he says, for they have gone out for the sake of the name This is what is motivating these missionaries. This is how John knows that these missionaries, how Gaius would know that these missionaries are true missionaries. They're going out for the sake of the name. And what is that name? The name is Jesus. And so he says, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So this idea of the name really gives us kind of the centerpiece of how Gaius and the church is supposed to judge who they should receive and who they should not. It all centers around the name. If you're not familiar with Christianity, that name is Jesus. In fact, this phrase here in 3 John of talking about people being involved in Christian ministry, being a ministry of the name. I know we don't really talk like that, like the name. We usually talk about Christian ministry or gospel ministry. John here describes it as the name. 
That was something that the early church did often. Uh, I'm, there, there's lots of examples of this in Acts. I'm going to read just a few of them to give you a, kind of an idea of the context that John has when he wrote this. In Acts chapter 2, the words are, and this will be familiar to some of you, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Acts 4, 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, um, by what power and by what name did you do this? Right? The disciples, the apostles are proclaiming Christ and they're being interrogated for their gospel ministry and their interrogators want to know, by, I mean, what name are you doing this? And the name, of course, is Jesus. In Acts 4.12, the message they were preaching was this, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The New Testament ministry of showing God's glory here on earth through Jesus, it was the name of Jesus where God's glory is displayed. Of course, in Acts 4, they met opposition. And so... Um, what they were saying is they wanted to stop people doing this, proclaiming the name of Jesus. So they said, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. This is what um, the antagonists were going to do. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You don't start realizing how often the apostles and the disciples' ministry was attached to this name, this name, this name over and over again. Of course, in Acts chapter 5, you have the apostles being called together because they, they've been rounded up, and they're going to be persecuted for preaching Christ. And it says in Acts chapter 5, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. How did, how did these gospel ministers respond to that treatment? They said this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Christian friends, this is why we've been singing about Jesus all morning long. If you're not a Christian, that's why Christians kind of obnoxiously sing about Jesus all the time because the salvation of God given to sinners is in is given to us in the name of Jesus, in Him and Him alone. And so these missionaries were preaching Christ, preaching Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And John and Gaius was receiving them in, giving them fellowship, and of course he was being mistreated. So the question is, do you know Jesus like this? Does the name of Jesus bring joy and gladness to your heart? Is there a willingness in your soul to, be, to suffer persecution? I mean, that's the opposite of the prosperity gospel, by the way, right? That for the name of Jesus, you would go through hardship and sacrifice because his name, because he is worthy. That's who Christians are. Christians are unusual people in that regard. We are living and we are accepting persecution and hardship for the name, for Jesus. Of course, this really is the center or central message of the gospel, what Jesus came and did, dying for sinners like us, redeeming us, offering forgiveness of sin so that we could know God forever. That's what it means to be a Christian. And Gaius is commended by John for walking in the truth of Jesus. Do you? Well, as you continue on, verse 7, verse 8, of course, the gospel work needs to go on and there's just some short statements in here about how uh, John is telling guys you, you need to receive these missionaries and you need to support them and send them out because they're speaking the name of Jesus. You do well to treat them with this honor. You can't expect non-believers to support Christian endeavors like that. Of course not. It needs to be Christian endeavors that do that. And again, this is just a, a short snapshot of early mission work and how the church, Christian church was involved in it. 
how the Christian church worked together in sending out missionaries and providing for mission work and what it was doing. And by the way, the big issue at stake in the conflict between Gaius and Diotrephes was not, um, was not just an interpersonal dispute. It really was an issue that centered around the mission of God's church, proclaiming Jesus. And what's so wonderful in verse 8 is you see how John summarizes his rela- the church's relationship with these missionaries that traveled in and then were sent out. He describes it as becoming fellow workers for the truth. And that's how Highlands, how we as a church family, look at our involvement in missionary work and missionary support, foreign missions, missions to the nations. When we extend Christian hospitality to faithful missionaries that come in, when we support mission works around the world through, through this ministry, through the generosity of this church family, what we are doing is we actually become a fellow worker of the truth. You may not have spoken to somebody in, in a foreign land about Christ, but you are a fellow worker in that in as much as you are a participant in helping that work be carried out around the nations. And by the way, it's exciting for Highlands this past year that we were able to increase uh, the amount that we're giving towards uh, missions work around spreading the name of Jesus in the world. Praise God for that. It means more and more we're able to share in being fellow workers of the truth with people like that. Well, the faithful work that God is doing through Gaius should encourage and inspire us all. I don't think Gaius would have understood his role in when it was happening, but we here 2,000 so years later are talking about him. Now, having raised that, I don't want you to be you know, pursuing some sort of fame as a Christian. Look at me. They're going to write stories about me in the future. No, that's, that wasn't on Gaius's radar at all. He's just a simple Christian guy in a church doing simple Christian works of hospitality. That's it. Yet here we are being reminded and, being, and seeing that exemplified. I just want to encourage you. You might be thinking you're doing um, unseen Christian work, that unseen acts of love, ordinary, simple acts in the Christian family here. Don't lose sight. Don't diminish the significance of that. Here we're reading about what Gaius has done. God sees and knows, and it's part of how God accomplishes his mission in the world through, the, through our acts was spreading the name of Jesus. The question is, God's mission is carried on through our sacrificial acts of ordinary, of ordinary love. What ways, and what ways are you engaged in that? How are you doing in that? This is not a sermon meant to burden you with do, 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 but you see the example here, and God has a mission, his mission as a church, and we need to be active in doing that. And so this is a good reminder for us as a church family. We need to follow the example that Gaius has of working to spread the name. Well, number two, diatrophies. Here we have an example of harmful ambition. Verses 9 and 10, we see the conflict that Gaius is faced with in the person of diatrophies and his actions. You can really summarize what diatrophies is doing by contrasting it to the way John describes Gaius. Gaius was walking in truth. Diatrophies is not walking in truth. He's walking in error. And those who walk in error, who proclaim error, must be corrected. And this is what John the Apostle is doing in these words. He, he hopes to do it more than just in, in, in word form. Look in verse 10. John is saying, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. He's going to correct this wrong that's happening there in the church and object to Diotrephes' actions. In our age of toleration, right? Toleration is the new norm, the idea of of uh, equality being sameness and everybody having their opinion and the idea of that's your truth. In an age where that's kind of the prevailing wind of the day, you might kind of listen to a scripture that talks about correction like that as, boy, that's kind of 
John's a little full of himself, isn't he? I mean, who's John? Why is he doing that? Well, that would be another sermon to talk about the credentials that John has in the age of the New Testament church and why he's fulfilling that role. But friends, the New Testament is full of examples where faithful Christian teachers are correcting error for the sake of the church, for the health of the church. John wasn't alone in that. The Apostle Paul called out Demas. He called out Alexander the coppersmith. He even called out Peter when Peter, an apostle, was not walking in truth in a specific way. And there's times in the life of the church where someone needs to be corrected for divisive actions, for walking, for not walking in truth. This is not something church leaders enjoy doing. They shouldn't enjoy doing. If they do, then there's something else wrong there. They don't enjoy doing it, but Christian leaders are called to do it. This is why Paul writes in, Tim, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. It's good for us to hear this so that we are not um, just thunderstruck if somebody were to reprove, rebuke, or exhort us who are not walking in truth. Friends, you need to be part of a church family that is is going to rebuke, reprove, and exhort you when you don't walk in truth. You need to be part of a church that does that. If you're part of a church that never reproves or rebukes or exhorts you, if there's none of that going on, then what hope do you have of ever walking in truth? And so I think it's healthy for us to be reminded of that in our age. Not belligerence, not beating somebody over the head with truth. No, do it with all complete patience and teaching, Paul says to Timothy. But nevertheless, we need to be part of a church that is going to hold with, with a loving grasp on truth and then help each other walk in the truth. The problem that Diotrephes had was he was selfish. Look at verse 9. Diotrephes likes to put himself first. It seems that personal ambition is what was setting Diotrephes astray. There is uh, some speculation about who this guy is. Um, one scholar was kind of ingenious in looking at the background of his name and understanding that his name might have been a link to some sort of aristocracy of the day. So he might have been a moneyed, wealthy individual that was used to influence and power and prestige. And therefore, the, the, the conflict that was happening with, with John was part of uh, Diotrephes feeling threatened by missionaries that were coming in and being real turfy and trying to make things go his way. He was going to be in charge and in, in, in restricting gospel work. Either way, the selfish interest, the self-absorbed uh, nature was a direct contradiction to the words of Christ that we read in Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's what Diotrephes was doing. Jesus says this, But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Gaius was walking in the example of Christ, serving, being a slave, opening hospitality even strangers. Diotrephes was the opposite of that, pushing for his agenda, lording authority over the church to its harm. Are there areas in your life, especially in regards to your involvement with, with your church family, where you like to put yourself first? We should probably do a little bit of self-assessment and be aware of that so that we can, by God's grace, steer away from walking in error. Third John is a warning for us to turn away from those notions, from those propensities. 
And it's an invitation to walk in truth. And walking in truth is giving ourselves in tireless acts of love for the sake of the name. Well, the truth that Jesus, of Jesus' name, and Diotrephes was not giving place to that, and of course this is why it set him at odds with Gaius. In the last part of verse 9, Diotrephes was so self-inflated that he wouldn't even acknowledge the, uh, the apostolic authority that John, that John had. It says that he liked to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. Here again, you have this issue of authority coming up in the church life. Um, many people have a bad reaction to authority, and there's been a lot of abuses of authority. But abuses of authority don't make authority itself bad. And I know we live in a world where it's hard for us to know which authority to trust in various sectors of life, right? I know it's frustrating. It's kind of exhausting in a way, too. And what can happen is we can start losing all of our sense of of value in authority, yet God is the one that created it. He, of course, is the ultimate authority. So authority is not bad. It can be used for bad purposes. But God's best for his people is healthy biblical authority exercised in the life of the church so the church can thrive This is what John is offering. John is writing with terms of love and compassion, a commitment to truth for the sake of the name of Christ. And of course, Diotrephes hears that and reacts against that authority. I think what lies behind what John is writing to Gaius, condemning Diotrephes' actions, is picked up by the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 when the author there says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Diotrephes would not. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Here's why. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13, 17, in that, little, in that snapshot, is described in a, in a circumstance here in, in 3 John. That's what's happening. John responds to Gaius with joy in his heart. Praise God for what you're doing, Gaius. And he responds to Diotrephes with a groaning. Here's a question. Do you bring joy or groaning to your pastors? You say, how dare you even ask that? Well, because we love you. We love you as pastors. Now, that's not a threat. Please don't take that. Well, if I'm a guy that's called, if I'm a person causing groaning to the pastors, now what, are you threatening me? No. The pastors are going to be committed to this flock, to each of you, whether you bring joy or groaning, because that's what Christ has called us to for all of us together, by the way. Pastors aren't uniquely called to that. I mean, we're kind of in front of people more, so that's more visibly expected. But friends, here we have a, an example of the health that a church family can enjoy. And it's enjoyed in when we as a church family are understanding we get to work together for these gospel aims. Let's do it so that we cause joy in the hearts of those leading us in, those, in that work. Diotrephes was talking wicked nonsense, verse 10. Right? He's bringing false accusations probably against Gaius, likely throwing around these words to discredit what, what, what Gaius is doing. But all of that sinful pride, all that divisiveness of telling you can't have these, Christian, these missionaries in, and preventing people who do, and then actually kicking people out of the church, which is kind of a puzzlement to me in the end of verse 10. He says, and he puts them out of the church. I don't know. Does Diotrephes have some sort of authority there in the local church and he's abusing it? And you see the contrast between John's pastoral uh, love for the church and Diotrephes' abuse of that authority. He's actually working against gospel efforts. Isn't it crazy how far we can wander when our pride gets a hold of us? Isn't it crazy? I don't imagine that Gaius and Diotrephes, whatever, six months, a year earlier, would have thought they would have been in this situation. I don't imagine that to be the case. Yet here they are. And we need to understand that danger lies within us, too. 
And this is why a church family is so healthy. It, it's been I described this way, and I just keep using it because it works. But a healthy church family with healthy church leadership is like throwing paint on the invisible man. We don't see these things. And we live with people who, who are God's gifts to us, right? As Christians, Christian family, and we help throw paint on the invisible man. We, oh, I never saw that. Thank you. We turn away from our pride, from our sin. But when we don't, boy, when we put ourselves, our agenda, our preferences, or whatever, first, then we, like Diotrephes, no longer walk in truth. Test yourself. What is your life characterized by? Again, I don't want this to just become moralistic. Be like Gaius. Don't be like Diotrephes. That's, that's not the, the main takeaways. But what is your life characterized by? Are you talking wicked nonsense against God's church or against faithful Christians and spiritual authority who are doing, caring, trying to proclaim the name of Christ? Or are you sacrificially engaged in serving Christ's church? Is your greatest allegiance to your agendas, your opinions, your preferences, so that you cannot partner with others in the gospel ministry because of the way it chafes against your elevated sense of self-absorption? Or do you find ways to encourage those engaged in proclaiming Christ? Third John. Finally, or we get to Demetrius here, the third person. And Demetrius is a good testimony. There's very little written about him. This will be very brief. In in verse 11, John is writing something that should sound very familiar to us when he says, um, not to imitate evil, but imitate good. And whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. It's kind of like boiling down First John in the sentence. He's reminding Gaius of this. And then he puts Demetrius forward. I think what's happening here, since we don't know anything about, else about Demetrius, is that it might have been that this letter was an introduction for Demetrius. And John was writing it because Gaius is like, I'm trying to help welcome these people in who are spreading the name of Christ. And we've got Diotrephes here who is attacking me for, and others for doing this. Uh, am I supposed to accept Demetrius in or not? And I'm wondering if this is a letter to commend Gaius to receive Demetrius. Yes, you can trust. This is good. No matter what Diotrephes says or does against you, carry on in that gospel work. It could be that's what's happening here. But either way, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. I think that's an interesting turn of phrase. We get that people could see, you know, and give a good report about Demetrius. But the truth itself, it's like John is personifying the truth there. It's interesting. I think what John is trying to describe is that the defining characteristic of Demetrius is the good testimony he's received from everyone and from the truth itself in that Demetrius' life conforms and supports and adheres to the truth. So John seems to be giving this exemplary word of commendation for, to Demetrius for having a good testimony. What kind of testimony would your church family commend about you? I know this is kind of, kind of a, a way to, for our self-examination, but it's, we need to do it from time to time, don't we? I'm not saying what kind of um, reputation are you, are you pursuing, because that might kind of have this idea of individualized you know, self-accomplishment. Not there, but what type of testimony would your church family commend you? Demetrius is commended by John. And by the way, it doesn't mean that he's perfect, no. It doesn't mean that he's sinless, no. But it means that he has a good testimony from others in the church family. I think Demetrius is a single example of the Christian church. I think Demetrius is what the Christian church should be filled with. People who are doing simple works of faithfulness and receiving a good testimony from that. 
And so, by the way, I want to point out how thankful we as pastors are that Highlands Baptist Church has a church family full of Christians who we can give a good testimony about one another. We can see the works of grace that God is doing in each other. We're encouraging those works of grace to be carried on. We as pastors are thankful and we're filled with a God-centered pride in what the Lord is doing here in this church family. And finally, John, this fourth person that we see there in verses 13 and 14. Of course, we've kind of been seeing him all along, right? Because he's been writing this letter. We've seen his love for this people and we see it pop out again here in verse 13. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. John is an example of pastoral love. Really, there's nothing like being with the people you love, huh? This is like when you're separated from someone you love, you just long to be reunited with them, be back with them. Uh, We've come through days of COVID restrictions where that was put in front of us front and center, where there's nothing that can replace being face-to-face with the people you love. That's the heart that John has for these people. And church family, I'm grateful and can assure you that that is the heart of your pastors for you. And what's so beautiful is how John closes this when he says, peace be to you. Of course, he's ushering this word of, of peace, and that really is the heart of the pastors of Highlands for all of you, that you would know and experience God's peace. But then he goes on and says this, the friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. And that wasn't just kind of a task they had to fulfill. I think what John is doing there is he's pointing out how close the affection and relationship is in a healthy church. You know the difference when somebody says, hey, you, because they don't know your name. It's very impersonal, right? But it's much different when they say, hey, and they say your name, right? There's an immediate closeness that comes there. It's much closer than just the generic, hey, you. And I think that's the tone that John is striking here. You've got this church faced with these obstacles, this tension going on inside of it. And yet John's heart for this church family is that, listen, there are Christians that know you and greeting each other by name. And so, by the way, if you're a member of this church, can I just encourage you, please, please get to know each other. <laughs> that takes work. And we're not a big church, but I have still heard of others in the church family from time to time. They're like, yeah, I've been coming for months, and some people still don't know my name, or I still don't know people's names. That can happen. I don't encourage us. Let's know each other by name. Here's one of the best tools to do that. You, you know what's coming, don't you? Your picture directory. I know. There's another plug for it. Um, folks, we do that on purpose so that we can know each other by name. Say, what scriptural text might influence that decision? Third John, right here, so that you can greet each other each by name. Know each other. Know each other well. Friends, Jesus says this, by, by this you will know that you, are my, that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. That's the sentiment that's captured here in Third John, and which, which is closed, closes on. Even though Third John was writing to correct division and divisiveness happening in the church, conflict, Yet he ends by writing words of love. I want to be with you. I want to see you in words of close affection. We greet you. Greet everyone by name. It's like John had a list of names in his head head as he thought about this church family. So let's pray for each other by name. Let's encourage each other by name. Let's serve together as a group of redeemed names, right? All gathered together and bound together in a shared commitment to the truth of Christ, the name Jesus that that we follow. I'm asking the music team to come up and get ready to lead us in our final song. Really, the close Christian family that we glimpse in 3 John is part of what God intends for us here at Highlands. And so you might say, what is one way that we can obey 3 John this week? There's many ways. We might need to confess 
um, being slanderous in our speech or having a, a bad attitude towards others in the church who we think you know, are, are, are getting in our way. We need to, maybe we need to repent of selfishness. Or maybe this. Maybe we can just open our church directories and pray for one another by name. Maybe we can, during our Coffee Connect time here after, after, the, after our morning services, we can look for somebody we don't know and blame me. Say, man, one of the pastors said, i got to introduce myself and get to know your name. Blame it on me. All right, it's fine. And just get to know each other that way. And let's keep them walking in truth together like this. Let's pray.